I believe that we live in the golden age of surveillance. There's more data available to them than ever before. We're going through this great leap forward in policing capabilities, thanks to the fact that everyone carries around with them these devices that leak constantly data, and most of which is insecure. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. Over the past 20 years, we've spent a lot of time thinking about the internet and the way it's shaped, well, just about everything. Nowadays, it's almost become common knowledge that social media is affecting our democracy, or that smartphones are changing the way we think, or that digital technologies can entrench the powerful. But 20 years ago, very few people were thinking about the internet this way. An exception was Ron Diebert. In 2001, Ron founded the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto. While other scholars were studying the way the internet was being used, Ron focused on the actual physical infrastructure of the internet itself. The data centers, the satellites, the fiber optic cables, and the devices in our homes and pockets. He was influenced by Harold Innes's notion of materiality, the idea that the physical properties of our communication systems actually shape the nature of our communication itself. Ron's primary focus has been on how this system is being exploited by bad actors, typically by governments trying to squash political unrest in autocracies and democracies alike. In 2001, the cyber espionage that Ron was studying would have looked like something out of a James Bond movie. It required a lot of money and sophisticated technology. But sometime in the late 2000s, all of that began to change. With the emergence of social media, we all started living more of our lives online. We were shopping online, watching TV online, and dating online. And in many ways, that made our lives more convenient. But it also made us a lot more visible and more vulnerable. All of a sudden, we were living in a world where governments didn't need to engage in spycraft to snoop on political dissidents. They could just exploit our new digital ecosystem. We often think about societies as being fundamentally democratic or autocratic. But Ron thinks this is the wrong framing. On the internet, the tools and even objectives of dictatorships and democracies are often more alike than we might want to acknowledge. All of this is front and center in Ron's new book, Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society which he also delivered for this year's Massey Lectures. His book builds on 20 years studying the internet and summarizes the harms we now face, surveillance capitalism, the abuses of state power, addictive technologies, and the environmental costs of it all. To be honest, it's a somewhat bleak picture of the present moment. But he also has a pretty optimistic vision of the future, a future guided by some ideas from our political and philosophical past. Here is Ron Diebert. Uh, Ron Diebert, welcome to Big Tech. Oh, thank you for having me, Taylor. It's a, a real pleasure to get to talk to you, especially about these topics. Look, I've been so looking forward to this. Um, I really love the book, and uh, it gives us this just wild glimpse into your world. I mean, it, I, I know generally what you work on, and but to hear some of these 
stories is really remarkable. Um, and actually, I want to start with one of those moments before like, I want to get into all the policy stuff. But I, I the w- one moment in this book that just totally took my breath away was the story you tell around um, Kajoji's killing. After a fortnight of denials, Saudi Arabia has admitted that the missing journalist Jamal Khashoggi died during his visit to the country's consulate in Istanbul earlier this month. And um, I wonder if we kind of start there and you could describe what happened there. Yeah, so uh, the way that we entered into this this horrible episode yeah. uh, goes back to uh, Citizen Lab's research on targeted espionage. So we've had a, a long-standing uh, research interest in this area, which is basically, you know, nation states hacking civil society, and they do it in various ways. Uh, one of which is to contract out to private companies for very specialized and sophisticated spyware technologies. And there are a number of companies that do this. And over the years, uh, the team at the Citizen Lab has developed uh, really refined methods that give us visibility into some of these companies' infrastructure to the point where, you know, with one particular company, the company in question here, which is Israel-based NSO Group, um, we we can see a lot of of what's going on. We can pretty much infer who the clients are, and we can see uh, a good deal of the targeting in some circumstances. Um, But in this particular case, um, in the spring of 2018, we had um, been monitoring targeted espionage using NSO's infrastructure, and we were preparing a a large report that was going to kind of profile um, all of the, uh, all of what we could see, basically, to, to put a picture on, on, uh, in front of people of, look, this is the scope of the type of surveillance that we're seeing some of the clients. And nothing to do with Saudi Arabia at the time. This was just global operations. Global yeah. operations, although we did know that Saudi Arabia was one of their clients. Uh, when, it, when we were looking at the Saudi Arabia targeting, we could see that there was an infected device in Canada. And of course, this really stood out for us in part because we're based in Canada. Um, but also, you will remember uh, around this time, there was a pretty high-level diplomatic dispute between our government and Saudi Arabia. Our foreign affairs minister and prime minister were both highly critical of Saudi Arabia's human rights record and record towards women. Uh, we will always speak up for human rights. We will always speak up for women's rights around the world. And... Uh, Saudi Arabia had, had engaged in this kind of social media campaign against the government. Do you recall there was this um, tweet that they put out from their official account showing planes going into the CN towers? Just like, that's right. In response to Freeland's tweet, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, looking at the targeting in Canada, we thought, oh man, let's find out who this is. Mm. Um, which is really a shot in the dark because all we could see from our vantage point was this particular infected device. So kind of on a whim, I, I said, let's just see if we could figure out who this is. And um, on our short list was Omar Abdulaziz. We knew of him um, because he has, uh, at, at that time, he had a pretty high profile YouTube account. <laughs> Uh, followed by like, you know, 500,000 on a regular basis. Uh, the way I described it at the time, 
it's kind of like a Stephen Colbert show of the Gulf region. Hmm. Basically this satirical uh, take on making fun of MBS, Mohammed bin Salman. So we met uh, Omar and um, looked through his SMS messages. And it's a bit different now how NSO works has become much more sophisticated. But at that time, especially the mechanism, the vector by which they get spyware on your phone is by sending you a shortened link that triggers the infection and they put malware in your device and silently take it over. We, from our vantage point, we had pretty much mapped all of the domains that they had registered in the shortened links. So once we looked through Omar's SMS messages, we saw that um, positive uh, confirmation, he was indeed uh, targeted with one of these SMS messages. And we said, you know, Omar, um, do you remember clicking on this? It was, a, it was like a few weeks in the past at this point. And it turns out Omar is a guy who likes to lift weights. And so he had uh, coincidentally ordered protein powder from Amazon on that very day. And then this fake text message came in from the Saudi intelligence operators saying, you have a DHL courier package coming, click on the link. And so he clicked on the link and that's how his device was infected. And, you know, there's a kind of paradox involved in doing this sort of outreach because we assume they've hacked his phone. Saudi operatives are listening in on everything that's going on. We're meeting with him. <clears throat> we hoped ultimately to be able to capture the spyware as we've done in the past. But obviously us meeting with Omar alerts them to it. And the spyware is quite sophisticated. They can actually remove it silently. So it, Once it, they know it's been discovered. Yeah. yeah. Anytime they can yeah. do this. Um, and and it, so it's, it's very stealthy and, and is designed in such a way to evade forensics. Um, anyway, we, we um, said, okay, we know who it is. We've got positive confirmation. Let's write up this report. And it wasn't until October uh, till we published it, October 1st. And the very next day, October 2nd, was when Jamal Khashoggi was uh, executed. And I, I, up until that point, I didn't realize that they were colleagues. Omar didn't mention it to me um, until that morning when I was in Europe at a conference and I got a text message. I'll, I'll never forget this. I looked down mm. and it was like, I'm really freaking out. And there was a lot of... Um, uh, how would you put it? Like it was an intense day because, you know, our report was covered prominently in the global media. And of course, Saudi Arabia spying on Canada. Like police were uh, calling us, wanting to know who the target was. And, you know, uh, Omar was concerned about uh, law enforcement. Like it was just a, a, mm. a, numerous things going on simultaneously. And then this comes into the mix. And of course, uh, Hoshoji's missing, and as the days go by, we understand that he was executed. So it was only after the fact that I realized, oh my God, they've been communicating over what they thought were encrypted, uh, over an encrypted platform, uh, you know, discussing these highly contentious plans. And you mentioned that he chose not to go into the Saudi embassy in Ottawa right around the same time. I mean, that's yeah. that's kind of just 
it's just amazing how close to home that hits when you think of a someone at a Canadian university possibly being murdered in an embassy in our capital. I mean, it's just... It's unbelievable, yeah. yeah. And that was, I learned that because I, I did an interview with uh, Omar while we were writing up the report, and that's when he didn't mention Hoshoji at the time, but he did tell me not only did they come to Canada and try to persuade him to go to the embassy in Ottawa, they also brought his brother along and held him out as like this putative threat. Like, okay, if you stop your YouTube stuff, come back to Saudi Arabia, we'll forgive it. You'll make lots of money. Everything will be cool. If you continue it, your brother here is going to be in trouble. And of course, they went back to Saudi Arabia's brother and other friends, maybe other family members as well, perhaps even to this day are in jail. Jesus. Um, so... I, w I want to talk a little bit about what this example, this very particular example, tells us about what's one of the core themes of the book, which is the abuse of power using technology. Um, and I, I think there's a real risk in some of these stories of thinking this is just autocratic regimes using one bad technology um, to do the bad things they generally, we know they did. Um, but really what you describe here is a much vaster infrastructure. I mean, that is both being built in democracies and in autocracies. Um, it is, involves corporations like in this example, McKinsey, that are part of these weird webs of intelligence that occurs. Um, and, and I guess I wonder if you could describe a little bit how you, how you look at that broader surveillance technology infrastructure and how it can really exist in in all these different political systems for all these different purposes. Yeah, it's this is something that really um, not only interests me, but the more I dig into it, the more I understand mm -hmm. how precarious is the ecosystem upon which high-risk civil society individuals and organizations depend for mm -hmm. the work that they do. So if you step back for a minute and you look at you know, putting aside social media, just the entire technological infrastructure, um, security's largely been an afterthought, first of all. You know, you have mm -hmm. these legacy systems that were invented in some cases decades ago when you look at telecommunications technologies and the protocols that underlie it all um, that have kind of, you know, been cobbled together is the way that I think about it. <clears throat> and of course, you know, on the surface, it, it kind of works well, works functions actually remarkably well if you look at what we're doing right now. Yeah. But there are all these um, negative externalities and gaping vulnerabilities. So when you insert malicious actors into the equation, they can exploit them. And mm. you know, under normal circumstances, that creates risks for average people of fraud, cybercrime, etc. But when you add into the mix highly resourced malicious actors being serviced by dark PR firms, uh, well-equipped surveillance vendors who know how to work their ways uh, through uh, the labyrinth, the catacombs mm -hmm. of this ecosystem. Mm -hmm. It really is a disaster. And <clears throat> that's why, you know, one of the themes uh, of the book that I tried to get across, and in fact, in, in all of the work that we do is to say that there is 
a real crisis in global civil society right now mm -hmm. because of the flawed infrastructure upon which uh, they rely. And mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing it like daily. I mean, the, the, the number of cases are just mounting of abuse of power um, happening worldwide. And it's certainly one of the um, most serious crises of liberal democracy, in my opinion, is this hollowing out, neutralizing of civil society. And it's not just the, the tangible cases like, you know, the worst being, of course, murdering somebody or, mm -hmm. you know, gathering incriminating evidence and putting them in jail. It's the fear. The, the, mm -hmm. That's the big thing that I notice, a psychological consequence. Um, mm -hmm. You know, spending a lot of time with high-risk people all over the, the world, you see now everyone's afraid to communicate. They don't trust mm -hmm. the technology. Yeah. That's like throwing sand in the machinery of civil society. Mm -hmm. And it's it's really insidious, right? Like it's, it's kind of, oh, uh, maybe somebody's watching me and I better not respond to that email. Everything slows down. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's a big, big, big problem. And it feels like with with this book particularly, you want to go far beyond just the high risk individuals. So you're yeah. and and even just in that in the descriptions of the the abuses of power, the range is pretty broad. Everything from Saudi Arabia's murdering of journalists to Uyghur detainment in China to Amazon Ring on our doorsteps, right? And and access, police access to that data. So are you concerned, and, and liberalism also runs through this conversation pretty pretty clearly. Are, are you worried that these technologies are just fundamentally illiberal that we're building, that regardless of whether they're being built in democracies or autocracies? Like, are we, are we building an illiberal technology infrastructure? I, I don't know if I'd say technologies have particular ideologies attached to them. I'm, I, I think what happens is, you know, we create mm. something, it's designed for a specific purpose, and then it ends up having consequences that we didn't expect. Yeah. You know, when I was adding up the what I call the painful truths yeah. around mm. the internet and social media, to me, it's almost like interlocking gears in a giant machine, starting with surveillance capitalism and mm. all the dynamics about that, leading to, you know, the, the, the toxic, public sphere, the outcomes that we see for the public sphere and, and you know, sensational extreme discourse being mm. prioritized and, and, and pushed out um, and how that creates opportunities for dark PR and propaganda and disinformation mm. yeah. to flourish. Everybody's aware of that now, I think. Yeah. Um, but also the insecurity, you know, all of us carry around these things now with us all the time in our pockets. And, um, they're designed in such a way that inherently they're insecure. It, mm. It's almost as if that's intentional, you know, because you have uh, at root this business model, which is about, you know, applying more and more sensors into more and more applications and devices to find out more and more about what mm. you do. And um, those who can exploit it um, end up, you know, being advantaged, given an advantage. Mm. Um, in my view, um, one of the biggest overlooked consequences of, of the digital revolution, let's call it, um, mm -hmm. is the way in which it is creating kind of states on steroids 
and in particular, um, this type of what I call superpower policing. Mm. So I'm thinking in particular about local law enforcement, mostly in Western industrialized countries, who now are being equipped with all sorts of uh, products and services that enable them to do all of these things at the same time that we are, thanks to surveillance capitalism, mm. turning our digital lives inside out. Mm. And so um, it's like the, um, the capabilities of law enforcement are increasing exponentially, but safeguards around them have remained more or less steady. And in fact, I would argue have been gradually eroding. Mm. And so we have this accountability gap. Mm. And that to me is, is not really, people are, be special, people are specialists understand it, but the general public, I don't think, is grasping what this means for the architecture of liberal democracy. Mm. Um, the constraints and safeguards around the abuse of power, which are, the, in my opinion, the heart of liberal democracy, cannot be taken for granted. Mm. They are social constructs, they're institutions, and they can be yeah. easily ignored, sidestepped, eroded over time. But on, the, on that, on the liberal democracy piece, do you, I, was, I was surprised to a certain degree that you didn't have a, in one of the harms chapters, dem democracy itself or democratic integrity. Did you, do you just think that runs through the entire project in a sense that this is about democracy or is this? I, I, I do see it running through, <clears throat> but especially pronounced in the, in the chapter on the abuse of power, which mm. I ended by trying to remind readers um, that abuse of power is inherent to human societies, unfortunately, mm. human nature being what it is. And those who, who have studied abuse of power have remarked upon this, that you know this is something, it's a natural tendency. Yeah. People who have power will tend to abuse it and we need to create safeguards against it. And what I am trying to convey throughout this book is you have these interlocking mechanisms Mm. that are combining to erode liberal democracy, which itself historically is both rare and fragile. Mm. You know, you're a political scientist by training as well, and as am I, and right, like the, the um, you know, this is, this is something that I think technologists don't always appreciate, yeah. is that, um, you know, this is not something that is just, has descended upon us and will be here as a fixture forever. Yeah, it, it's something that is a, is a human creation, and it can easily be subverted. And it also depends on the material context. That's the other. As, as I was researching, especially republicanism, classical republicanism, yeah. and people like Montesquieu, right? This understanding that geography, technology, material context yeah. really matters for whether liberal polities will be viable. Well, we're going through this phenomenal like transformation in the material context within about a span of a decade, really, more yeah. or less. I mean, that, that's that's what kind of struck me is that you you begin the book talking about materiality and particularly Harold Innes and how he sort of puts all this weight in the infrastructure itself and how that drove you to try and understand the infrastructure. Yeah, but that was twenty years ago, right? And that infrastructure has gone through this just tremendous evolution. Yes. Since then, and it feels like you're talking about it in a different way now. That and even just the use of social media as kind of this overarching framework 
for a lot of this discussion. Um, feels like that's something new, right? Like we have a different infrastructure than we did 10 years ago, as you said. And do you think that's right? Kind of, although one thing I'm struck by, and I, as I, I think I mentioned, I want to start focusing on this moving forward, are the legacy systems that un- underlie it and mm-hmm. that won't disappear. For example, telecommunications. Um, you know, while we're all focused on social media right now, for good reason, um, there are SMS messages going around threatening people and one of our researchers at the lab is doggedly tracking these down. Mm. And you know, part of the reason something like that can happen is because telecommunications networks were designed at a time when most of the companies were largely state-run and there were very few of them. So mm. they had these kind of protocols that they developed and a technological infrastructure that more or less was a, re- a re- reflection of that arrangement and it hasn't gone away like it's it's just kind of persisted um nso group the spyware company that we're tracking has now developed a no click exploit so they don't need to send that sms message with the shortened link as bait any longer they can simply ring up a phone Mm -hmm. and and take it over any phone in the world the reason that they can do that is because underlying the communications ecosystem is this inherently flawed protocol system that goes back to the 1970s, if not earlier, that hasn't been fixed and really cannot be fixed. Uh, It was Mm -hmm. built for a time prior to everyone having instant messaging applications on mobile devices. And so is, is this social media conversation distracting us a bit from this broader infrastructure governance conversation we need to be having? Like, are we, are we too quickly abandoning some of these more long-lasting infrastructure debates? Um, well, it's hard to avoid the social media topic because it's so prevalent and yeah. dominates. It's all around us. And um, I think they're connected in a way, too. Um, people like Shoshana Zuboff and others have done a terrific job really underlining for us the dynamics of the business model of surveillance capitalism and social Mm -hmm. media that I think are at the heart of a lot of the problems. But there is this underlying ecosystem of inherent insecurity is the way that I think about it that complements those dynamics in important ways. And so we, we can't solve one without looking at the other in important respects. Now, the discourse in this space, especially in the mainstream media, typically revolves around the Western world and Silicon Valley tech companies. But there is another, just as influential player here, China. For a long time, people thought that the internet, like capitalism, would be a democratizing force in China. That hasn't happened. And China is actually exporting their own surveillance technologies to other illiberal regimes. It's a big part of the current slide towards the liberalism that we're seeing around the world. How do you engage with that narrative? And what's China's ambition here? Because we've been told for decades that there was no imperial ambition. Yeah, Uh, that's a really, it's a big and important topic for sure, and a, a really disturbing one too. And, you know, going back, when I first got into this area, after the Berlin Wall fell, 
um, I was in actually in East Berlin and I, I was training at that time to be a, a Sovietologist. That's what I thought my career. <laughs> and when the Berlin Wall fell, um, I, I was starting the PhD program at mm -hmm. the University of British Columbia. And my, my supervisor, Mark Zacher, said, I should, you know, you should look at the information revolution, was what it was. Little did he know the two would re-merge 20 years later, right? That's true. Yeah, good point. Um, so I was like, okay, yeah, that's, that's great. I'm going to look at this. And, you know, uh, I kind of bought into the belief at that time um, that there is no way, I was looking at it kind of structurally, how can these rigid, monolithic, dictatorships and authoritarian countries withstand this light speed distributed you know infrastructure it mm -hmm. will be impossible and there's all sorts of ingenuity and ways that it's empowering civil society and so uh, actually when i then was hired at university of toronto and started the citizen lab the idea was to kind of test that proposition and china was our main focus originally and what I began to realize was that, okay, this is not such a simple equation. Um, they are developing, you know, the great firewall and the filtering technologies. And it was only like more recently that I began to see, okay, wow, this is really now uh, developing into something where you have um, state surveillance capabilities, but also very lucrative business opportunities that are mm. combining in this kind of dystopian mix. And um, uh, I think it gives a glimpse of what things look like when you remove altogether any institutionalized checks and balances against the abuse of power. You know, the system is not perfect. One of the findings of our research at Citizen Lab is that in fact, it's highly distributed censorship and information control generally mm. passed down to the private sector and it makes people a lot of money. And, and business is the key part of what's driving a lot of the ambition to export a lot of these technologies. So the combination of all of that is explains why we're seeing this incredible spread of, of uh, Chinese technology, um, especially in places like Sub-Saharan Africa. And I think there is obviously layered over top a geopolitical kind of strategy around Let's um, align a lot of these countries with our interests to make sure that we can count on them when it comes to things like votes at the U United Nations as well. One of the things that often frustrates me about the policy debate in this space is how fragmented it is. Because big tech influences so many aspects of our society, the policy agenda Everything from privacy law to trust-busting can seem vast and disconnected. Ron thinks that we need some sort of guiding principle to shape this agenda. But he doesn't think we need to reinvent the wheel. Instead, he draws on one of the oldest political traditions around, liberalism. In particular, the liberal idea that we need to build restraint into our political and economic systems. For Ron, Restraint is the key to this whole thing. So how did you come to this guiding framework and how would you describe it of not just restraint, but how it's situated within a much deeper political tradition? And, and why is that important, do you think? You know, like you, I, I sort of look at this and, and 
part of it is a frustration that uh, you know you see all of these proposals and it's kind of like um, there, there's an incomplete foundation to it and and also of course just you know um, friends that I speak with people who are not academics but still very intelligent thoughtful people would all always ask well what should we do about Facebook you know what mm. should I give up should I unplug? You know, I get these questions all the time and I'm like, oh, how do oh I answer God. this? It's, it's a daily challenge. <laughs> daily challenge. And so like, you must know, just because, you know, vaguely I do stuff technology related. I got a question for you. Like, should Solve I Solve Facebook. Facebook? Yeah. <laughs> what should I do? Mm-hmm. Um, so what I wanted to do here, especially given the format of the Massey lecture, you know, which is meant to be for a popular audience, right? It was... I, I knew that I didn't want to put forward a series of recommendations, right? Like, okay, here's recommendation number 22, right? Mm-hmm. It would turn people off. But more importantly, I wanted to remind people, uh, I, f- I felt like there's a kind of amnesia that, you know, th- what people are advocating for when they're talking about antitrust, what they're advocating for when they're talking about algorithmic accountability mm-hmm. or the right to repair mm-hmm. or even unplugging and detaching. Uh, to me, um, you know, my background is in political theory. I'm not, I'm not a political theor- theorist. I wouldn't pretend to be, but I, I have spent a lot of time yeah. uh, reading, you know, the classics of political theory. So it's not like I'm inventing something new. I, I merely wanted to remind people that, A, there is a underlying philosophical framework that we can apply here. B, it's not something new. <laughs> it's something mm-hmm. that humans have um, thought about for centuries and it's helped them navigate uh, particular challenges, especially when the material context is changing or, um, you know, when they're thinking about how to prevent uh, dictatorship from emerging or, you know, uh, ensuring that there's equity and, and fairness when it comes to people's rights. And mm-hmm. this is a tradition that goes back to ancient Greece. And, yeah. and the more I thought about it, uh, the more it kind of all came together and made sense. But especially, you know, with the liberal Republican tradition and its um, central importance in the founding of the United States, I knew that this would be quite provocative at this time to actually put that out there and say, you know, the most fulsome articulation of these principles was done by this. Uh, group of people at this time, no doubt about it, there are all sorts of flaws around Mm. the characters and the circumstances, but at the heart was this experiment. And wouldn't it be nice to remind people about that? So anyway, that's how that came about. It's simply, you know, okay, there's a lot that we can work with here, both in terms of, you know, restraint is at the heart of republicanism as I see it. And also though, this idea of civic virtue, which I think is often overlooked. We, we have this reflex right now to blame social media, to expect them to police content and discussion in the public sphere, when in fact there is an underlying uh, obligation, I would say, among users, consumers, and citizens ultimately to think about their own behavior. And that's something that just doesn't come out of nowhere it's something that has to be cultivated through public education. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of those things we've kind of lost sight of 
uh, for a variety of reasons over the last, really the last century, but especially in the last few decades. I mean, is, is there a challenge of placing this responsibility in liberal institutions at a time when trust in them is in decline in part because of the <laughs> technological infrastructure that politics is being done on and in? <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, we're witnessing it as we speak. And, you know, there's been so much corrosion on multiple levels around those public institutions. And also, you know, a variety of interlocking causal factors is how I think about it, right? You, mm. you have um, neoliberalism and deregulation and all of that entails. You have this trend, which is connected to it kind of tangentially to emphasize within public education and universities, engineering, science, mathematics, at the expense of the arts, humanities, social science, civics. Um, and then, of course, you know, the primary means by which we communicate and exchange information is fundamentally premised on a business model that intentionally surfaces extreme sensational content. Yeah. Those combined uh, create the outcome that we see. Mm. It's like, you know, the exhaust from the, the machine that I'm talking about is all of the, the negative externalities that we see on a daily basis. So I want to ask you about a couple of the maybe more challenging aspects of this policy agenda. I mean, I, as everything gets clustered together in all these ideas, one of my other frustrations is that we treat them all as kind of equally solvable. <laughs> when Really, when you look at that menu of policies you laid out, which includes dozens of things, some of them are probably quite easy and can be done with a degree of political backing and probably should be done tomorrow. And others are these just fundamentally vexing issues that could take decades or could never be resolved, and maybe the harms just need to be minimized. And I want to talk about a few of those. Um, one is on encryption. Mm -hmm. So you have argued for a long time very powerfully around the value of encryption and the critical importance of encryption for both preserving the integrity of our infrastructure, but also for individual rights, um, preserving individual rights. Um, and we seem to be at a place now where a lot of our communication moves to more encrypted spaces and potentially more at least private spaces that we're going to get increasing government pressure to look into those spaces. Um, how do you see that debate playing out when, on the one hand, you have people saying, look, WhatsApp is a real problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and on the other hand, you have um, a lot of very important political activity that happens within it. Yes, yeah, it's, it's not an easy, um, or, you know, those who come forward and say, I've got a simple answer for this, yeah. are really, um, I think, uh, leading a lot um, because it's it's there's there is no simple answer it's a complicated issue mm -hmm. there are equities involved and there are real challenges uh, for law enforcement and intelligence agencies to do the work that they do uh, I know this from our own experiences because we are doing work that's very similar in nature and we often come across instances where we are stymied by things like that it prevents us from seeing who's doing something nefarious in the yeah. same way that law enforcement would have trouble dealing with very serious criminal issues like 
pedophiles and so on, terrorism. Um, my view is that, um, you know, first of all, the, the debate is often incorrectly portrayed as between security versus privacy, when in fact it's about two different versions of security, first mm -hmm. of all. Um, and, and we cannot sacrifice one for the other. Um, instead, I think we have to recognize that uh, law enforcement needs to pivot and state agencies need to pivot. And by that, I mean, they need to change their, their, their orientation and how they go about doing what they're doing. And I think furthermore, uh, this idea of, uh, that you often hear, they use the rhetoric of going dark because yeah. of encryption. I believe that we live contrarily in the golden age of surveillance. There's more data available to them than ever before. As I explain in the book, we're going through this great leap forward in policing capabilities, thanks to the fact that everyone carries around with them these devices mm. that leak constantly data, and most of which is insecure. Yeah. Um, so the, it's a bit of a rube, really, to say that this encryption is kind of preventing us. What they're really uh, saying is, you know, we want uh, even additional benefits that we don't have right now. Right. And we, we're willing to weaken everybody else's security in order to do that. Um, part of the reason I can say this confidently is because of the work that we do at the Citizen Lab, where, you know, if we are able to track uh, the most powerful nation state operators and the world's most sophisticated surveillance companies to the point where I can literally say to you with a high degree of confidence right now who's using that spyware what countries and in which countries there are infected devices taking place <laughs> and we're a small research group at the university of toronto mm. we're not some superpower agency right that suggests so, to me that there's a lot that can be done if you if you the nsa know. might have as much enough visibility as i'm it sure is. they're they, they've got uh <laughs> this all under control which is in part why you often find the NSA not advocating for weakening encryption. In yeah. fact, the opposite, right? Yeah. Um, they understand that. Um, mm. we, we are now, I think, dependent on a planetary network is the way I think about it. We're moving in this direction in spite of ourselves. Mm. And of course, it's a, a long process, but it's a one-way street. If we're going to survive the challenges of climate change, we're going to need a highly secure infrastructure through which we exchange information, store it securely and so on. Encryption is the only way to do that. So when it comes to criminal behavior, challenges around national security, we have to think of alternative ways to deal with those problems. So one thing I was really pleasantly surprised to see, the, see this focus on the environment and climate change, which you almost never see in this kind of book talking about the harms, potential harms of technology. Um, but it, I found it striking that there wasn't a big conversation about the solutions to those sets of problems in the governance piece. And I'm wondering if that's because they lie elsewhere, that if these are just, is there anything about these that are technology-based or are these just problems with our supply chains and capitalism and yeah. lack of global regulation on the environment? And like, or should we be thinking about these as a technology-specific issue? Uh, I think they're connected to technology and especially... Um, uh, you know, the syndrome that we see around the environmental impacts, the ecological footprint of, or at least that I see and some others see around big data and, and you know, the machine-based civilization that we've created um, are 
very much connect, connected to the current business model, which mm -hmm. is, um, you know, has been for a long time around consumption and planned obsolescence. That's not new, right? We, we've, but with surveillance capitalism, it's like it's, you know, been amplified yeah. a hundredfold. So to the extent that we can solve some of the uh, problems around surveillance capitalism will contribute, I believe, to uh, some of the solutions that are required around the environmental impacts of, of tech, technology and big data. Hopefully we'll slow things down a bit. Um, and it's connected also to things like the right to repair. Mm. So if you look at the, the conversations, most of them around the right to repair, they actually don't talk about it in relation to waste. It, more, it has to do more with, hey, I bought this thing. I should be able to fix it. And, you know, I, and also proprietary issues, mm -hmm. digital rights management, copyright. To me, the right to repair is as much about planned obsolescence and, and working against that. And I, I really saw that with the trip that I talk about in India, where I was, I went there specifically knowing I wanted to write about this topic. I was doing mm -hmm. other things as well, but I, I made some trips to the recycling centers and, and was, it was remarkable to me, this, you know, this kind of industrial effort to take things apart right down to the last screw. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are a lot of problems with what's going on there, but there is also some, there are also some lessons to be learned about how we think about this stuff. And, and all of it connects back to this idea of, you know, we don't want people looking too much under the hood. Mm. You know, this is pervasive. And it's not just with hardware, right? It's, it's with algorithms and with what data is collected and what's not and how it's used and how it's sold, and, right? There's... And institutions, you know, yeah. intelligence. Hey, don't look at... Absolutely, yeah. You know, so all of this has to, it, it connects back. You know, once you start talking about, well, you, you should give people the ability to actually fix their equipment, then it opens up the possibility of more curiosity about what's going on inside those systems, where all the technology leads. So you're not presented instead with this virtual mirage. Mm. Um, what we're doing right now seems like magic, but it's, it's not magic. It's very physical, right? Like uh, as we are speaking, somewhere in, I don't know, between you and I, and there's a data center that's chugging along, you know, yeah. and it's drawing enormous energy and water and, and water exactly and and all of this stuff this this thing is i just felt like i bought it like last year i probably got to upgrade now to another one yeah. and the battery's dying right like you know there's a culture yeah. around more faster um that i think we need to revisit and it's yeah. all part of one piece and that perception of magic empowers the people who control the systems totally right? i mean that's why we see all of this glorifying of tech workers and of government powers that use these technologies we don't understand. Exactly. And techno solutionism, you know, we, we have an app for that. Like, trust us, we know how to do this. Um, yeah. it's, it's true. And, but you are right. I, I could have, you know, one of the, a bit frustrating for me was once I got into that last chapter, I realized, okay, I can only be superficial around a lot of these things. There's, there's not mm. enough space. Otherwise I'm going to have like, one big mammoth chapter, right? And, yeah. <laughs> and I knew these were lectures. They had to be five lectures. Um, so I am planning, uh, I'm working on it as we speak, a subsequent book on this very topic, more or less. Um, you know, driving a lot of what I do is a recognition of the existential risks around climate change. 
mostly. Mm. And yeah. so technology is critical to solving that. And we right now have this dysfunctional system mm. that is actually making things worse. <laughs> yeah. I'm well, God, I'm glad to hear you're working on that. I'd love to love to hear more about that. Um, and I look, I have five other <laughs> vexing challenges to talk to you about, but I, we obviously don't have time. So I'll just I'll just end it with with one final piece, I guess, which is how do you see the public views on this changing? Do you do you think we're in a real a different moment now and there's gonna be more appetite for this kind of pretty big regulatory reform we're talking about and changes to how we govern? Do you are are you seeing a public appetite for that in your work? One that I haven't seen in a long time, for sure. I, I don't think it's, um, you know, it's counterbalanced by all sorts of other things, especially the pandemic. I'm really concerned about the ways in which big tech and the existing infrastructure, which is highly insecure, poorly regulated, invasive by design and prone to abuse. And we're all living on it 24 hours a day. Yeah. We're, we're now not only, yeah. uh, we're just so more dependent on it. Mm. So I'm, I'm worried about that. But at the same time, as never before, I think there is a moment where, you know, you have these conversations. Even the fact that the idiot Donald Trump is tweeting about Section 230, it opens up a conversation. Okay, well, what is what is Section 230? Most people don't know, right? Of course, you and I know, but general public now, to have them talking about... Isn't it wild to see sort of hour multiple hours long youtube shows debating section 230 i mean it's totally. just it's it's remarkable and and you know as you said and i and you obviously recognize earlier you said that it's like you know this it's incredibly uh complicated to look at any one of these and there's one right like what mm. the heck you you start opening it up it's like a pandora's box right mm. and and we have to kind of tiptoe around it it's also us regulation like what do we as canadians do should you know how do we think about this whole topic i would love to talk to you about that because i know like you know i'm a canadian but honestly i'm not an expert in in the canadian system and mm. um I, I would love to talk to you more about how you see this all unfolding in canada mm. like what what levers do we have what's realistic what could we do in this country differently well to be continued and we'll take that one offline as they say <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Taylor. And, and thank you for having me on your, on your show. That was my conversation with Ron Diebert. I'd love to hear what you thought of the interview. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and produced by Antica Productions. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week. <laughs>